Hi, Vet Girl here today with Dr. Dolly, who is of the White Coat Investor, and he's actually a practicing board-certified emergency physician who created this awesome addictive podcast called White Coat Investor, and I'm super honored to be able to interview him today um, just because I know he gives fantastic financial advice, even though he's not a financial advisor. Um, He also has a financial book called Mutual Funds for Dummies. So Dr. Dolly, thank you so much for taking the time to be on today's Vet Girl podcast. You're very welcome. I'm glad to be here. Although I'm not sure I can take claim for Eric Tyson's Mutual Funds for Dummies. That's a great book and I like it and it helped me a lot, but it's not one I wrote. The one I wrote is also by the same name as the podcast, The White Coat Investor. Oh, I'm so sorry about that. Okay. Thank you so much. So as a little bit of background, just so our audience knows who you are, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself and how you actually transitioned from practicing emergency medicine in the human field to actually creating the White Coat Investor and what it actually does? Well, it's been a really interesting journey, to be honest with you. What got me really motivated originally to start learning about personal finance and investing was getting ripped off myself. I mean, it seems like I've been ripped off by just about every kind of financial professional there is. Financial advisors, insurance agents, recruiters, realtors, lenders, you name it. I've been ripped off by them. And so after a while, I realized if I didn't start learning this stuff, it was just going to be a series of these poor financial decisions throughout my life. So I started studying and started reading and started you know, reading blogs and books and participating in internet forums. And after a few years, I realized I was doing a lot more teaching than I was learning. And I realized nobody was teaching this stuff to doctors, doctors of any type, physicians, dentists, veterinarians, you name it. Nobody was teaching this to high-income professionals. And yet those doctors were getting squeezed more and more by the higher cost of their education and oftentimes by falling incomes. And so despite everybody in their lives thinking they're wealthy, many of them weren't anywhere close to being wealthy and were continuing to make poor financial decisions that were keeping them that way. And so I started the White Coat Investor originally as a blog, and it's kind of grown into a little media empire. I mean, it's a podcast and a video cast and a book and a live conference. And, you know, we have a scholarship and we do all kinds of things just trying to get this information out to docs to help them uh, as much as we can. And it's been a really fun journey. I'm still practicing emergency medicine, but certainly probably spending more time now on the White Coat Investor stuff. Fantastic. And for those of you guys who are interested, you can find more information at his website, whitecoatinvestor.com. If you're on Twitter, he's at WC Investor. And definitely uh, check him out on Facebook too, because he posts a lot of his helpful blogs right there also. So the first thing I wanted to ask, and this is something that's very common in the veterinary field, is when it comes to veterinary medicine, the average veterinary student after you know four years of undergraduate and four years years of veterinary school, just the veterinary school right now, we're averaging about two hundred to 300000 in student debt. And you know, when you look at the actual stats, the stats from the AVMA say approximately 170000 but with some of the Caribbean schools, it's as high as 300 plus. When it comes to student debt, is there any general advice that you recommend? I know that a lot of veterinary students are really relying on the veterinary medicine loan repayment program and some of these professional repayment options. But what general advice do you have for someone who has accumulated just that much debt? 
Well, it certainly feels overwhelming because it is overwhelming. I mean, it's a lot of debt and it doesn't matter whether you are a dentist who owes $400,000 or a physician who owes $600,000 or a veterinarian who owes $300,000. This will have a major impact on your financial life. Now, the thing about those average debt numbers is they are averages and some people have zero debt. While on the other end, there are people that have far more than average. And those are the ones I really worry about just because uh, it's that much harder to dig out of debt. But if you actually look at the numbers, it turns out that up to about one times your salary. So if you're making $100,000, $100,000 in debt is pretty doable. If you do two times your salary, you can still get there, but it's definitely going to have some you know, influence on your life. As you get out to three times your salary, for example, a $100,000 salary and a $300,000 debt, it's really going to take some serious financial sacrifice and you know, it's going to take a long, long time to, to get this taken care of. And as you get out to four times your debt, you've got to wonder if you really made a smart decision at all taking on that much debt for that type of an income. It really becomes crippling debt at that point. And so I'm sure there are a lot of veterinarians out there who can who can attest to those ratios being that much more difficult. And so I think the first question to look at when, when you're looking at that sort of a debt to income ratio is who's going to be paying this debt back? Is there any way to qualify for some sort of a government program or uh, you know, some sort of other program that will help pay off the debt? And if so, obviously don't pay off debt that someone else is going to pay off. But if it looks like you're going to be paying it off, then the only way to do that is to refinance it to as low of a rate as you can and to increase your income as much as you can, decrease your spending as much as you can, and put as much income toward that a debt as possible to get it paid off. And the sooner in your career you do that, the sooner you are to have some financial freedom and be able to have the choices you want to have during your career. What do you generally recommend in terms of people who have a relatively low interest rate of, say, 2 to 3% with that much debt load? Do you still recommend paying it off relatively early? Well, I think the lower the interest rate, I think the easier it is to justify investing instead of paying down debt. The problem a lot of us have is it's not just a math question. It's also a behavioral issue. A lot of times we say, well, the interest rate's low, so I don't want to pay it off. But instead of investing on the side, which you know you could make a pretty good mathematical case for, we go buy a boat or we buy an Audi, or you know, we blow it on a vacation, or whatever. And so, obviously, borrowing at two or three percent to go on vacation is not the smartest financial move. Uh, even if borrowing at two or three percent and investing it in your Roth IRA, for instance, might be. In terms of graduating with student debt, I know I had graduated Cornell, gosh, 20 years ago with 100000 at that time, and I went on to do an internship and a three-year residency, and I continued to delay my reimbursement or paying off my debt during my internship and residency, but thankfully I was able to pay off my loans within 11 years. And I know on your podcast, you always say, live like a resident, and you know, I really tried to do that just because the debt was so stressful, just mentally it was taxing to me. What are your general tips for being able to, quote, live like a resident? Well, I think the key is uh, to remember that wealth is not income. Because this is the problem is high income professionals. We come out of training relatively late in life, especially if you do a long residency or something. You know, your whole family thinks you're a doctor and you make all this money. And so there's all this pressure to grow into that income as quickly as possible. And the problem is sometimes in society, even even with our tax laws and stuff, 
people assume that income is wealth. And the truth of the matter is income is not. It's net worth that is wealth. And if you're coming out of school owing two or three hundred thousand dollars, you know, in reality, you're one of the poorest people on the planet. Even the bum living under the aqueduct down the street has a higher net worth than you do. His net worth is zero. And yours might be minus 200 or 300,000. And so I think taking that perspective and realizing that, you know, I might have a high income, but I'm not wealthy yet will really help you to keep your spending down. But that's really the key is to live like a student or live like a resident until you can get that schooling paid off because you're really not done with school until you've paid off the loans. And so I think the bigger the difference between what you're living on and what you're making, the more of that income that can go toward building wealth, paying off debt, uh, maxing out retirement accounts, that kind of stuff. And so I think that's really the key is to realize that, you know, the average household in America is living on $57,000 a year right now. And so it's not asking that much for even a high income professional to be living on some amount of money uh, you know, around that figure, and then use the rest of the income to build wealth. You know, a lot of small animal veterinary professionals will oftentimes buy small animal clinics and run them as a small business. And what we're finding is in the past few years, especially with the millennial generation, is they're more hesitant to own a practice. They come out of veterinary school with, you know, 200000 and they just can't imagine adding a mortgage and getting a $1 million small business loan on top of it. Now, I know a lot of people say, well, the only way to truly make money in veterinary medicine is to own your small business. Do you think this is something that people should be considering, even though they have such a large student debt load? Absolutely. I think they should be considering it. I think they should consider anything that can boost their income. Now, obviously, it's got to increase your income even after servicing that debt, whether the practice you know, debt is half a million or a million or whatever it is, you've got to be able to not only service that debt, but actually come out ahead for doing it. And you know, there's a certain amount of business risk there. I mean, if you can't really increase that income or you can't service the debt, you could pretty easily go bankrupt. And so you really need to be committed not only to the long haul with that business, but actually become savvy enough at running the business that it makes sense for you to do so. But if you can increase your income from, say, $80,000 a year to $200,000 a year by owning the business, you know, that's probably going to be worth taking on that risk and taking on that debt. And I don't know that just having student loans on the side uh, is a reason to not necessarily take out that debt, even though that's a common thing for people to do, whether they're physicians or dentists or veterinarians or attorneys or whatever. Oftentimes they shy away from owning their own practice because they already owe so much money. Now, the mortgage, on the other hand, is not going to be bringing in any extra money. You know, a house is mostly a consumption item, not an investment. And so while it's okay to buy a house if you're in a stable social and professional situation, the goal would be to keep the cost of your housing as low as possible while you're trying to get rid of that student loan and while you're trying to get rid of that practice debt. I always tell people when you just graduate vet school, or if you're still in vet school, live with roommates as long as you can, because once you live by yourself, you can never go back. <laughs> and that's yeah, my, there's, that's there's my one a lot tip. of truth to that. It's really hard to cut back your lifestyle. Once you've grown into a lifestyle, it's really hard to spend less, but it's not that hard to increase it slowly to, you know, keep it low from the beginning. 
Um, you know, especially when you're coming from a relatively uh, low income situation, you know, like vet school, it's not that hard to only give yourself a 10, 20, 30% raise even uh, on what you were spending. And then you feel like you got a big raise. I mean, 20% would be huge in corporate America, but yet you still have a big space between your income and what you're spending that you can use to, to pay off debt and otherwise build wealth. My general advice when I lecture to veterinary students and it's a totally different world from when I was in veterinary school 20 years ago. We didn't have smartphones. I didn't have to have one is, you know, trying to live with a flip phone for as long as you can, trying to live with roommates, trying to avoid getting cable in your house. You know, my cable is $200 a month. So there's a lot of ways where you can uh, have some cost savings right now. So really do encourage people to live as frugally as they can, just like a broke veterinary student for as long as they can. Now, yeah, oh, I, I think that's right. I think you just have to look at every expense and, and see what you can do to keep it down because, uh, you know, we all feel like we're being frugal. You know, I talk to physicians that are, you know, making $300,000 a year and, and spending $325,000 a year, and they tell me they're frugal, you know, and it, it, so all of us, I think, look at our spending as not spending on anything unnecessary. But the truth of the matter is we all spend a lot of money on stuff that is is completely optional. And the more carefully you look at things, the the more you realize that. Great points. Now, I know when I first started investing, I literally called TIA CREF and I was like, I want to invest. I want to start a Roth IRA, but I have no idea how to do it. I didn't understand the concept at all. So I think that's one of the biggest barriers that people have. And so a lot of veterinarians are like, well, should I get a financial advisor? And I know you talk quite a bit about you know, how you are paying all these fees, you're getting ripped off with financial advisors. What are your general few tips on how to find a financial advisor and do you recommend people who are not financially savvy even starting with one? Well, I think there there's a few things to know about financial advisors. First of all, you've got to realize that people don't go into giving financial advice as a profession for the same reason that you went to veterinary school. You know, it's not this love of uh, of helping others, helping animals, et cetera, that drives people into most of the financial fields. Typically, they're motivated much more by money than the typical person going to dental school or vet school or whatever. And so bear in mind that they look at the world a little bit differently from you do. And it's important when you interact with them to realize that and to kind of have your guard up a little bit and to be very uh, cautious to negotiate and to look at the fees and those sorts of things. But there's certainly nothing wrong with paying for financial advice, particularly the more clueless you are about finances. But my general rule is that you figure out a way to pay for the advice rather than paying commissions on products. Because a lot of people out there that call themselves financial advisors are actually salesmen of financial products. And so what they're doing really is selling you stuff. And oftentimes, because the products that pay the highest commissions are the worst products, then it turns out that you know you end up getting the worst possible investing advice by going to someone who's actually, you know, selling products and not really giving good advice. And so avoid the commission salesman masquerading as advisors, I think is probably the most important key. You've got to know how that advisor is paid and how much they're paid in order to be able to evaluate the quality of the advice you're getting. Great advice. I first had my experience with a financial advisor who was trying to sell me a ton of insurance. And as a young, healthy, you know, 30 year old, I was like, I don't feel like I need all all this insurance and ran the opposite direction. So when in doubt, ask a colleague, get a reference, but make sure you uh, investigate to find the right 
financial advisor. Yeah, All right. for sure. I mean, they've got an incentive to sell you as much insurance as you're willing to buy. And it's not that insurance is a bad thing. You definitely want to insure against financial catastrophes, but it's amazing how often they can talk you into extra insurance, things you may not need, like a whole life policy, that sort of thing. Excellent. Now, when you listen to, or when I listen to your podcasts and look at your blogs, you talk a lot about the backdoor Roth IRA. And if you could just briefly explain to our audience the difference between an IRA, a Roth IRA, and what this backdoor IRA, that'd be fantastic. Sure. Well, an IRA is an individual retirement arrangement. So it's a retirement plan that anybody can use uh, as long as they have some earned income. And you can put, if you're under 50, up to $5,500 per year into that account. If you're married, you can put in $5,500 into an account for your spouse, even if your spouse isn't working as long as you have enough income to justify that contribution. And with a traditional IRA, the way it typically works is you get a tax break the year you put the money in the account. So that all that money you put in the account, you don't pay taxes on that year. And then it grows in a tax-protected way over the years and decades. And then when you take the money out in retirement, uh, hopefully in a lower tax bracket than you're in now, then you pay taxes on it. So you're basically deferring this income for your entire career until you're actually ready to spend it. And that tax protection is really helpful and helps it grow faster. Now, the other type of retirement account is called a Roth IRA, in which case it kind of works the opposite way. You pay the taxes up front. And then it grows in a tax-protected way over the decades. And then when you take it out, all the money comes out tax-free in retirement. And so there's two different types of accounts. But prior to 2010, the way the laws were written, if you were a high earner, and that definition goes up each year, but for a married couple, I think it's somewhere around $160,000 or $170,000 per year, at which point you're excluded from being able to put money directly into a Roth IRA. However, in 2010, they changed the rules such that there was no income limit on converting a traditional IRA to a Roth IRA. And so even if you can't deduct a traditional IRA contribution because you make too much money, and even though you can't put the money directly into a Roth IRA because you make too much money, you can still get money into a Roth IRA through the backdoor process. And it sounds like it's some illegal thing. It's not. Congress has certainly endorsed it, as has the IRS. But basically, the way it works is you put the money into a traditional IRA where there's no contribution limit based on your income, you know, no income that keeps you from contributing. And then the next day, you convert it to a Roth IRA. You just transfer it out of that traditional IRA into a Roth IRA. And it ends up being just the same as if you'd contributed it directly to a Roth IRA, just because of the way the goofy rules are written by Congress and the IRS. And so a lot of people think they can't use the Roth IRA once they start making good money. And that's just not the case. And it's still a helpful account to have and something you ought to consider if you've already maxed out you know, your 401k or other retirement plans that are available to you. It does sound too good to be true. So helpful information. And honestly, I'm embarrassed to say I try to be financially savvy. I had never even heard of it until I discovered your podcast. So. Yeah, it's not uncommon for people not to have heard of it. I'm I'm surprised how many, uh, you know, even seven or eight years into this going on, because people have been doing it, thousands and thousands of people have been doing it since 2010. And, uh, and there's still people every day that send me an email or leave a comment on the blog that are just finding out about it. And so it's Not that uncommon, unfortunately, for that to happen. And so just to clarify, are you paying the penalty and the tax for that year? But again, when it's being compounded and when you retire, hopefully in 20 years, you're able to take that out tax-free? 
That's exactly right. You know, a Roth IRA, once you take that money out in retirement, it comes out totally tax-free, which is helpful if you've got a lot of other taxable income. For example, if you have rental properties or even, you know, part of your social security is taxable income. And so it's nice to have some that's tax-free in retirement. And that kind of helps you to be able to adjust your tax rate in retirement. You basically decide how much you're taking from tax-deferred accounts like 401ks, and then you take the rest from a Roth IRA, and it allows you to keep yourself in a relatively low tax bracket. For our listeners, how much paperwork is involved? Is it really complicated or are there any end-of-the-year tax forms that they need to specifically fill out or do they do it all through their accountant or through Vanguard or whoever they're investing in? Well, I mean, all the account opening is done through your, you know, mutual fund company or your brokerage or whoever's holding this account for you. So you mentioned Vanguard. Vanguard's a mutual fund company and an excellent one because they're the only mutual mutual fund company. And they can certainly help you to open the account if, uh, you know, you just need to get on the phone with them and talk to someone, have them walk you through it. It's fairly straightforward to do online without talking to anybody. But if you need the help, they can walk you through it. As far as the tax paperwork, there is one form that gets added to your taxes when you do a backdoor Roth IRA. It's called Form 8606. And I've got actually instructions on my website how to fill it out. And so it's really not that bad. You know, the first time it seems a little overwhelming to have to do any sort of additional tax form. But, you know, the second year, you just go back and copy it from the prior year. It's really not that big a deal. So there is some tax paperwork your accountant can help you with. And of course, you've got to, somebody's got to go on there and open the account and actually choose the investment inside the account. But again, that's one of those things that seems intimidating at first. And once you do it once, you realize, well, that's way easier than anything I'm doing at work. Fantastic. I could ask you questions all day, but I'll just ask you two more. So um, the first one is, as I mentioned before, a lot of veterinarians are small business owners. And for the people who are not, they often will ask me because I have two S corps. They'll ask me, oh, should I have my own small business? Or if I'm a relief veterinarian, do I need an LLC? Uh, Are there any tax benefits or any protective measures that warrant opening up an LLC or a small business? Sure. An LLC or or a corporation both provide significant protection for business kind of liability. Now, that generally doesn't mean, at least in the physician world, that doesn't give you an additional, any additional malpractice protection because malpractice is always personal. And I suspect that may be the same in the veterinary world, but I can't say for sure. But for example, if you have your, uh, you know, one of your employees sue you, it can provide some protection from that. And so there's some benefit to having an LLC or an S Corp. And I think if you have employees, it's probably worth doing that. As far as the taxes go, the real benefit of either an LLC filing taxes as an S Corp or an S Corp itself is that you can split your income such that some of it is salary and some of it is distribution. And the benefit of calling some of that income distribution is that you don't have to pay payroll taxes on it, like Social Security or Medicare. And so that can save you a significant amount of tax, particularly in the veterinary range of income. You know, if you're in the fifty dollars to $100,000 range of income and you can take you know $25,000 and call it distribution that you're no longer paying that 15% payroll tax on, that can really save you quite a bit of money. That's the real benefit there. The downside, of course, is money that is called a distribution can't go into the calculation that determines how much you can put into a retirement account like a 
401k, which if you're trying to max that sort of an account out, sometimes you want to pay yourself a little bit more, even if it costs you a little more in payroll tax. But that's the main reason people are forming S-Corps is in order to lower their payroll tax. It doesn't lower your federal or state income tax, but it does decrease how much you're paying in Social Security and Medicare. Thank you. We as veterinary professionals, the one way we're lucky is, thankfully, our malpractice insurance is extremely inexpensive. It's less than $1,000. And in most states, you can't sue for more than the value of the animal. That's highly debated. So thankfully, we're a bit limited in what damages we're responsible for. The last yeah, thing I, it makes it a little easier for sure. Yeah. The last thing I wanted to talk about is the mistake of a lot of veterinary students are, you know, early in their career veterinarians is they put a lot of their debt onto credit card and don't max out their retirement options, even if the match through their employer is only three to four percent. What is your general recommendation with weighing credit card debt versus 401k investments when, you know, veterinary professionals feel like they have no money to put into that 401k? Well, I mean, I think the first thing is get yourself in a position where you can save. I mean, credit cards are really not for credit, despite the name, right? They're for convenience. They're for ordering something online. They're for buying an airplane ticket. They're for renting a car. You know, if you're actually carrying a balance month to month, you're doing credit cards all wrong. I mean, borrowing money at 15 or 20 or 30% as credit cards are allowed to go up to is, is just a losing proposition. I mean, if you've got a credit card at 25%, that is your best investment, paying that down. You're not going to find that kind of a return anywhere else. And so if you've managed to get yourself into credit card debt, the first thing is, you know, quit digging your hole bigger, quit putting money on a credit card, cut that thing up. And, um, and then, of course, prioritize paying that off because it's a great investment. But in general, when you're weighing paying down debt versus investing, you want to take a look at the interest rate. You know, if you get those interest rates really low, it can sometimes make sense to invest. And the other thing to keep in mind are things like a 401k match. I view that as part of your salary. You know, if you have to put a certain amount of money into the 401k to get that match, that's basically free money. And so I would always encourage you to save enough to get the match, even if you're carrying credit card debt, and then turn around and everything else you can spare should go toward that credit card debt before you start putting more money into a backdoor Roth IRA or a 401k or saving up for a home down payment. That'll just kill you and keep you poor your entire career if you carry that credit card or debt around for very long at all. Wonderful. Fantastic information. I know I used to live by the cartoonist Scott Adams uh, financial one page quote by Dilbert on, you know, nine financial tips. And one of them was pay off your credit cards. And unfortunately, you know, we feel really broke, but I always say that, like you just mentioned that 15% interest ugh, is such a waste of money. So when in doubt, invest in in that uh, instead and try to save as much as you can. Well, fantastic information. I really appreciate you taking the time to help educate the veterinary community out there and wanted to direct everyone again to whitecoatinvestor.com. I'm going to buy your book right now on Amazon at the White Coat Investor, A Doctor's Guide to Personal Finance and Investing. Really impressive. You have 800 customer reviews of five star. So definitely worth checking out. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And thank you to all your listeners for what they do. The work they do on a daily basis is important and it impacts people's lives. And, uh, you know, it's a big sacrifice to become a vet. And I'm thankful for those who have chosen to dedicate their lives to doing that. 
Dr. Dolly, thank you again. Again, check out White Coat Investor on podcasts, on Facebook, on Twitter, and uh, definitely check out their book.